The title of this message this morning is How to Grow Through Loss, and it, it's something that uh, pretty much hits each one of us, actually. Any of you adults wants to go hear a children's story, feel free. Oh, it's great seeing all these young people this morning. Bridge to Terabithia is a story of a special friendship between a boy and a girl. Although they are from different backgrounds, their hearts were knit together in a secret kingdom of their own creation called Terabithia. And like all of us, they longed for a friend that you did everything with and told everything to, and uh, for the lucky few, they found it. One day, the rope that swung them over a creek from their ordinary world to the shores of their enchanted world broke, and the 11-year-old queen of Terabithia drowned, and Jesse, her king, had to learn how to continue growing through his loss. Let's watch this clip and you get an understanding of what I'm talking about. Have you been there? Might be a phone call. Maybe the police show up at your door, whatever. But in that instant, all the air is just sucked out of the room and almost out of your body, actually, when that loss hits. The story of Terabithia grew out of a everyday real-life story. The author, eight-year-old son, lost his best friend when she was struck by lightning. 
Catherine Patterson shares about her son's subsequent struggles to grow through the loss in a later book called Gates of Excellence. And I quote, as she speaks of her son, he's now fully healed. Perhaps he never will be. And I'm beginning to believe that this is right. How many people in their whole lifetime have a friend who is to them what Lisa was to David? When you have had such a gift, should you ever forget it? Of course he'll forget a little, but even now he's making other friendships. His life will go on, though hers could not. And selfishly, I want his pain to ease, but how can I say that I want him to get over it? As though having loved and been loved were some sort of disease. I want the joy of knowing Lisa and the sorrow of losing her to be a part of him and to shape him into growing levels of caring and understanding, perhaps as an artist, but certainly as a person. We have all lost people or will lose people to the grave in life. It's part of life. Losses we will never get over yet. For our own well-being and mental being, we have to learn to live with it. In 40 years of ministry, I've been in a lot of different circumstances where people have lost somebody. I learned early, you don't ever say to somebody with a tremendous loss, you need to get over it. Because there are things in our life that you ever never get over. And I think people around us want us to get over it because they're tired of hearing about it. And you know what? We cannot get over it properly without the Holy Spirit's help as comforter. It's the only way that this will work, that, it, that we can get back to some semblance of normal. Maybe you too know what it's like to have your life molded by the pressure and pain of loss. We need to go back to Job today, and, if, and you need to meet him if you haven't. I know I mentioned him last week in passing, and I've mentioned him a lot. But we meet him in the brutal ring of suffering recorded in the first two chapters of his book, where he gets hit with incredible losses, and maybe you've had losses like his as well. Perhaps there with Job in those deep, intimate moments of shared hurt, so we can learn some things that can help you and I grow through loss to better understand and appreciate our own reaction to loss, we, we go to Job and we need to examine three key facts this morning. And the first one is this, that there are categories of loss. When we speak of loss, we run through a gamut of meanings and, and from trivia to serious, from losing our balance to losing our courage, losing our will to live, or as Mark 8.36 says, even losing our souls. So to help us, as we talk about categories of loss, there are two major uh, categories. First is the loss of significant individuals. At one time or another, like I said, we'll be baptized in the experience either by death or by distance. Death and administering its last rides through illness or accident, old age or war or miscarriage. And dis distance may separate no less 
brutality through misunderstandings, divorce, the waning intimacy of a friend who has moved away, or a job situation where your family's taken away or somebody that you love. That's the first one. Second is the loss of personal necessities or benefits. Maybe you have walked through the charcoal runs of a, of a burnt house or um, you've been hit with sudden unemployment or your dream that has died or the loss maybe you've suffered through this whole pandemic. I know there are different kinds of losses that people have. Nonetheless, it's still a loss. The losses may be different between the two categories, but feelings share the same intensity. They hurt just as bad, is what I'm trying to say. The second key truth about experience is loss is reaction to loss. Characteristics of grief are probably familiar to most of us. First, there's shock and panic followed by denial. You just can't believe it. You're going it through your mind, and like the little boy did, he runs and said, this can't be true. But it is. Which eventually yields to anger and disillusionment, and then comes depression. Finally, a resolution of some sort. You know, stages of grief, I, I wish I could say that after that initial shock, you could just skip to stage seven, which is coming back to normal, so to speak, or somewhat normal. It don't work that way. You've got to work through those. And sometimes we get stuck in a stage or we go back. And sometimes we get to the last stage or almost there in a song or a picture or at Christmas with an empty chair or Thanksgiving, and it all comes back again, knocks that scab off, and that, that wound begins to bleed again. You'll never get over that. I, I wish I could say today that the tragedies that we've had in life that has scarred us and left scars on our heart, I wish I could tell you that you'll get over it completely, but I think we just, we just, learn, we just learn to live with it. There are... Two kinds of reactions, the common and the rare. The common resolution, their resolutions, include lifelong depression, resentment, and bitterness. The rare resolution, however, involves the uncharacteristic response of acceptance. You finally come to grips. You've accepted it. You've walked down those dark corridors of grief. You've opened the door for submission to God, which will lead to growth. Grieving, as we all know, is a part of the human experience, a part even Jesus shared. If you remember in John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible said Jesus wept. That's not unspiritual, actually, to show your emotions. We shouldn't view it as that. So how can we acknowledge our grief, even move through it, to get to the point where we're not bitter, that we're not resentful, it's a matter of perspective, and that's the third key fact about experiencing loss. It is our perspective that will determine whether our reaction to loss will become common or rare. If our perspective stays horizontal, as we try to get our comfort and things from things on earth, we will never get to the point where we need to be if we focus vertical, if we focus on God, if our thoughts and our actions and everything point toward Him, 
with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can get to the point where we can experience growth. Job is a classic case study in suffering. We go back there a lot, you know, like I've said before. But as we get into his experience and we see uh, what he had and what he lost, we kind of maybe can empathize with him somewhat. Some of you can this morning. Beginning in Job 1.1, we are given a personal inventory of Job's spiritual and material wealth. At the top of that list is Job's own personal character. And there's nothing to suggest in the book that he was a full-time minister, so he had to live up to that reputation. Instead, it, it, it pictures him an ordinary person whose good reputation came from not a title, but from a genuine commitment to a walk with God. And boy, that, that list continues with the blessings of his children, with his livestock and his servants. And laid out on a one-page dimension, it looks like that Job maybe had it made his whole life, but we need to remember, actually, that he went through the trials of raising 10 kids, building a successful business, and cultivating a love for God in the midst of it all. So remember this, to see him as a human, as an ordinary person, it maybe help us relate to that. Here's what he lost. There are passages of scriptures that I, I go over and over again, and I try to uh, come to grips with it in my mind. We know who Satan is. He was created to stand next to God. He was a special angel, so to speak. Well, even though he was cast out of heaven, God let him come back. And we, we entered the throne room of heaven, and God's sitting on the throne, and here Satan shows up. Remember that the Scripture tells us that Satan is accuser of believers. That's what he does. He goes around accusing us, trying to drag us, kicking and screaming into the pits of hell. That's his main goal in life. So we picture this scene in heaven one day. Satan shows up. And he said, hey, God, won't you, won't you let me spend a little time with your servant Job? I know that he loves you and follows you just because all that stuff you gave him, big family, Money, wealth, possessions. Satan was sure that Job allowed God or followed God only because of that from the blessings. Satan said, you let me have him a while and this will all go away. And so to prove his servant, God allowed the growing pain of loss to be brought upon Job. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them, slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Everything that Job had worked for and prayed for over the years was brutally torn out of his life in an instant. 
I, I think about this and I think about Job. Can you imagine the confidence that God had in Job? Because God's omniscient. He knows. He knows what was going to happen. But he had enough confidence in Job that he allowed Satan to come into his life and to do that for a witness, for a witness for all those millennia, even up to today, until Jesus comes back. I can't imagine how many sermons are preached about Job as a witness because he held fast to God. Here's how it happened. Satan didn't send up any warning flags so that Job could prepare himself. He just came up from behind Job and hit him with all the meanness and the power that he could put into that one blow. And it resulted in utter devastation for, of Job's wealth, his family, from which nothing could be recovered. Now you talk about having a bad day. We have bad days, but I doubt if anybody here could stand and give a testimony that they had a worse day than Job. Here's how he reacted. So Job's reaction to having everything stripped away from him was pretty disappointing for Satan. Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. He didn't stand and scream and shout and shake his fist at God and say why about a million times. He accepted it. Well, that's tough business, isn't it? Just to accept without a question what God has brought into your life. But he was so tight to God that he could do that. And he did it. Job was able to respond in worship because he had never taken the possessions of the blessings God had given him. He had never built up this unrealistic expectations that God's blessings were his to keep the rest of his life. He recognized that he was just a stewardship of God's. And all that he had was God's, and God could take it away anytime he wanted. Because Job never really did own it. God was just letting him use it. And when God allowed all that had been given Job to be taken away, it served only to remind Job of God's sovereignty, his reign over all things and his right to be worshipped. Job chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Imagine saying these words after the loss that he had just suffered. This is Job speaking. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Right off in round one, Job's response almost knocked Satan out for the full count. But Satan got back up on his feet and was granted a second round from the Lord to try to bring Job's faith to his knees. So all that Job had was gone. And now comes a personal attack to his very body. Verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took his pot shirt to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. I can't think of anything. Maybe shingles would come close to this. If you ever had shingles, that's a bad gig. But you picture that in Job's mind, sitting in a pile of ashes with a piece of pottery, 
scraping those boils and scraping that pus out. It's pretty nasty to think about, but that's exactly what was going on. So despite his miserable condition and the emotional grief brought on by his losses, especially that of his children, Job continued to respond by trusting in God. Somehow, in the midst of all this, Job's wife had already decided to throw in the towel and advise Job to do the same. She was not thinking about her husband and the misery that he was in. She was thinking about herself and what had been taken from her. So this is what she said in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. No one needs to wonder which of the two responses, common or rare, that she had chosen. The shock had set in for her, and it had turned into pure anger, which was now settling into a deep disillusionment, garnered with bitterness. She had taken God's gift and took personal control of them, said, these are mine. Lost her kids. Money was gone. And now her husband was in a mess. Made her look bad. And now she wants Job to join in her emotions of bitterness and anger and curse God and get out of here to die. That's, what, that's where she was at. This is why Job responded to his wife in verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I don't know how much confidence God has in you and I today. I'm sure some. But does he have enough confidence that we would go through something like this and still praise his game? I hope so. I say this tongue-in-cheek sometimes. I'll tell God not to brag on Eddie. Uh, man, this is just an amazing story. And there's lessons here to learn from a seasoned sufferer. If anybody suffered, it was, it was Job. Here's three tough lessons that we learn from the book of Job that are hard for us to grasp. The first lesson is this. Our major goal in life is not to be happy or satisfied, but to glorify God. Job 5, 17 through 21. In his book, Effective Biblical Counseling, Biblical Counseling, Larry Crabb points out that many of us place top priority not on becoming Christ-like in the middle of our problems, but on finding happiness. I must firmly and consciously, by an act of my will, reject the goal of becoming happy and adopt the goal of becoming more like the Lord. The result will be happy, happiness for me, as I learn to dwell at God's right hand in fellowship with Christ, end of quote. But it cuts against the grain of American culture. We're taught as children, a lot of us, to find happiness, to go to school, get a job, make a lot of money, be happy. But that's, I think we, we, we miss what God has called us to do and put us on this earth to be, is to glorify him. And if we do that, if we glorify God in our life, that happiness will be there. But it won't be man-made. It will be a spiritual happiness that the Holy Spirit has placed in your life because you've been obedient and you're doing what he wants us to do. As he blessed Job, 
he, he will bless you as well. In the end, Job was blessed off the chart, actually. Second lesson, the path of obedience is marked by times of loss and suffering, Job 23, 8 through 14. Job concluded this passage of Scripture by saying, For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are from him. He's saying that God has my path marked out. That our paths will be marked with losses and suffering, which are allowed by God to bring glory to himself. This was the same for Jesus. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And then the last one, third lesson. What is considered lost now often leads to gain later. Job 42.10-17. through 17. The purpose of Job's losses was not simply so that the Lord would come back later and give him great blessing, even more than he had before. The greatest gain for Job, who suffered a loss, he contended, trusted God. And in that dark area, he became closer and closer to God. When things are smooth sailing for us, you know, we, we, might, we might pray, we might read the Bible, but when things are taken away, when we experience loss like that, in that dark room with just us and God as we cry out, that, that's when we get close to him. That's when we sense his presence the most, and we come out of that into the light, a changed person, actually. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Paul, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them as rubbish. King James Version is dung. I count them as dung in order that I may, I may gain Christ. Job is a classic study in loss. He's a great example of the principle perspective determines growth. And by examining these portions in Job, that we can draw some principles out of our own life that we can apply either now or in the future. So here's a list. If you, if you got a pen and you want to jot those down, Job 1, 20 through 22, Job 2, 7 through 10, Job 23, 8 through 14, Job 42, 10 through 17. And as you read those, try to draw those principles out of there that will help you. You know, my prayer for you, myself as well, that we grow from loss, that we come better we can become better and not bitter. My first few years in the church was spent at an altar. It seemed like every Sunday or every other. I just couldn't connect the dots. I come to church and feel conviction, ask for forgiveness, and ask for help to do better. And sometimes in those weeks, I didn't do better. Sometimes I even did worse. Then we come back the next Sunday, and the Holy Spirit would grab me by the heart and squeeze it, and I, I just knew that I need to unload that load on Christ. But it was during all that time that people that in my home church loved me enough that they'd come up and pray with me. You know, a lot of times they never said anything. They just laid a hand on me, and I knew that they were there. And sometimes they would ask, and we would pray together, whatever. If you're here this morning and you need prayed with, that's, that's all I'm trying to say. 
that this altar is open, that you can come and people will kneel with you and pray with you for whatever's going on. And I know that there are people here that uh, have dealt with loss and maybe still suffering from it, but uh, I just want you to leave this place better this morning because I love you. Lord, we give you praise and glory for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, for the power of, of you, Holy Spirit, that comes into our lives and gives us peace and gives us direction. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the Lord that struggle alongside, that go through some of the same things and understand. Not to judge us, but just to love us and try to get us where we need to be, back on the right path when we have strayed off, which we all do. So right now, Holy Spirit, I just pray that we're all honest as you want to deal with our hearts. Uh, right where we sit or at this altar, don't matter really, in a sense. So, because I know you deal with hearts wherever we're at. So I just lift this time of the service up to you, Lord, that you're allowed to work, Holy Spirit. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.